How is everybody? Good, good, okay. The sun's shining, right? It's not raining. That's enough to be like super happy about. Um, that's good. Hey, and then something else. If you weren't here last weekend, we did our baptism services. We baptized 133 last weekend. Yeah, which is really cool. And then uh, a young lady got baptized at the nine o'clock this morning. So 134 in the last two weekends, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good weekend. Um, love doing baptism weekends. Love doing worship night weekends. Um, also really, really happy to get back to just teaching straight from the Word of God. We've been in the book of Acts for a long time. And if you're new to the church or if, uh, you know, because it's been a couple of weeks and you maybe forgot where we are, were, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, let me catch you up a little bit. So we are in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, now 16, chapter 16 is a pretty eventful chapter. A lot going on in this chapter. And we broke it up into a couple of parts because there's a lot of stuff going on. In chapter 16, where we're essentially at is this group of missionaries who started off in eastern Turkey, They've traveled, and I'm going to show you a fancy map here in a minute. They traveled all the way through Turkey. They crossed the Aegean Sea. They have gone into North Europe, right, into Greece, into the northern part of Greece. And now Christianity is starting to grow in Europe, a completely different continent. We learn in chapter 16 the first person to give their life to Christ in uh, Greece and in Europe was a woman named Lydia. She helped facilitate and start the first church in Europe, the church in a city called Philippi, the Philippian church. That's where we get the book of Philippians, right? And this woman, Lydia, facilitated this church in her home. Um, we see in chapter 16 that uh, Paul and Silas and his team are walking down the road one day. There's a woman who is demonically possessed, and Paul looks at her and casts a demon out of her. They end up getting thrown in jail for that because she made money for her slave owners by telling the, the, the future, by telling fortunes. And so they're in jail, they're singing, they're praising, There's this earthquake happens and, and God loosens all the chains of the people in this jail. And so we see this miraculous thing happen and the jailer gets saved and his whole family gets saved and they're all baptized and a lot of stuff happens in chapter 16. So you should go back and read that if you missed it. Now what we talked about from chapter 16, kind of the high points, so there's three. The first one is we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. So we saw a demon get exercised out of a young woman, right? We talked about the contentment God gives. Then even in the middle of being in prison, that these men were content. They worshiped, they praised, they, they sang, and they, and they prayed to God, right? And then we talked about the responsibility of Christians. That as they left town, they made sure that their reputation was still good. They talked to the officials, they got all the miscommunications squared up, and they moved on, but they wanted to make sure the reputation of the church was healthy and good, okay? So this is what we're going to talk about this week. And um, just to throw it out there before we get into it, it's a shorter lesson, but we're going to talk about some pretty weighty stuff at the end. And we're going to ask ourselves this question. And I know at first we always answer yes, right? But we're going to ask, do we really want the truth? Because sometimes the truth contradicts our political views, contradicts our cultural views, contradicts maybe our economical, you know, economic views. And so sometimes we go after the truth to find that sometimes the truth is very uncomfortable. So we're going to ask ourselves the question today, do we want the truth, right? And so we're going to do that. We're just going to do a fraction of chapter 17. We're going to go through verses 1 through 15. We'll break it down, and then we'll revisit this question, okay? And we're just going to be super straightforward with each other 
super honest with each other, God, and with ourselves, and um, we'll see what happens, okay? All right? So you should have a notes handout in front of you. Is everything I'm going to say in that? Everything that's up here is also on those notes. If you have a smartphone, the Uversion app, it's uh, free. Everything's on there, the scripture and the notes that we'll be talking about today, and we should be in pretty good shape. So I'm going to pray, and we will jump into this, and, uh, and it'll be a good afternoon. Anyone else's allergies going crazy right now, by the way? Yeah. I need to buy stock in the Visine allergy stuff. Um, every, every stoplight, I, I pull it out, and I'm like squeezing it, and I'm like, someone's going to see me doing this, Right? <laughs> And wonder why, right? You know, I look like some drug addict over there pumping Visine allergy in my eyes like crazy. Not that I've ever, you know, heard of any of that stuff. But anyways, let's pray and let's get into chapter 17. <laughs> I'm going to clean up this mess that I've already made, right? So, all right. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Thank you so much for this church. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room, Lord. Thank you, God, that we have an environment where we can laugh and we can be open-minded, God, and where we can directly just go after the truth, God, regardless of what it tells us. God, keep, give us an open mind today. Uh, protect us, Lord. Uh, make this a safe place, God. And um, Lord, just help us, God, to, to approach your word with complete um, open-mindedness. God, we pray that you bless every church in our community. Bless all the great nonprofits in our community, Lord, specifically uh, Stepping Stones that we're working with this month and that we work with three times a month, God, in our church. Lord, that they can help those homeless women and children, God, and, and uh, provide for their needs, Lord. God, we love you. If there's anyone in this room who is not a Christian, Lord, we pray, God, that something today sparks an interest in them, and um, we pray that they feel welcomed and comfortable in this place. And Father, my last prayer, I just pray that you convict our hearts today. If things come up in this lesson that, today, God, that, that maybe contradict things that we feel or do, I pray, Lord, that you set us on your path, God. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to do my best to break it down, and um, we'll get you out of here a little early. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. Now, let me show you this map. So, on this map, where they first started off this second missionary trip, this is the second time they've gone out and taught people who are not Jewish about the gospel, okay? They started off in modern-day Antioch, which is in southeastern Turkey, okay? That's where they started. They traveled all the way across Turkey. They crossed the northern part of the Aegean Sea, ended up in the continent of Europe in North Greece, an area called Macedonia, okay? That's where the Philippian church is, right? So the book of Philippians, it was written to that second circle up there. They're going to travel a little bit further west. They're going to go through a couple of different cities, and they're going to end up in Thessalonica that we're going to talk about today, the book of Thessalonians. And they're also going to end up in an area called Berea, and we're going to talk about that. But I just kind of want to show you how far they've traveled, where they've already been, and where we're going to be in this chapter, okay? So after leaving Philippi, traveling through northern Greece, Paul and his team come across their first synagogue in Europe, 
that they've been to, okay? Now, Paul would have enjoyed this because he felt the most comfortable teaching in the synagogues. But in Thessalonica, let me tell you about this city. It was a wealthy city. It was a diverse city. It was a very influential city when it came to politics. And because it was so diverse, it had so many different kinds of people, they had a high number of Jewish people. Therefore, there was a synagogue, okay? So that's where they went. That was their first stopping place. Now, these guys were probably exhausted. So if you finish up chapter 16, if you go back and read that, if you missed it, or if you remember it from a couple of weeks ago, they'd gotten severely beaten in chapter 16. They had stayed the night in the worst part of a jail. They were released from that. And then they take a three-day walk through Amphipolis and through Apollonia before they arrive in the city of Thessalonica. Now, it does not say if they shared the gospel in those cities. It doesn't say if they were successful or not successful. We don't know. Luke wanted to hit the high points, so we move on to Thessalonica, okay? That's where we're going to hang out a little bit today. So as Paul and the team roll into the synagogue, okay, they go three weekends in a row, right? Three Sabbath days in a row. And they had stuck to what their original plan was. If you weren't here for this, the original plan, wherever they went, they found the Jewish people first, not because they loved them or thought that they were more important than anyone else, but they went to the Jewish people first because they should have been, theoretically, the easiest ones to tell about Jesus because they already believed in the Old Testament. So it should have been the easiest group to share Jesus Christ with. So they went to the Jews first, and after the Jews, they would move on to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now, here was their objective. Very, very simple, but very important. Their objective was to reason, explain, prove, and proclaim Jesus based on the Scripture. Now, this is interesting. What scripture? They didn't have the New Testament. You guys ever hear Christians, which this really bothers me. A lot of Christians say, well, that's Old Testament. We don't really focus on that very much. Well, in this time, they didn't have the New Testament. So the only thing that they had to prove Jesus, this is important, was the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is referred to and mentioned, even as far back as Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of your Bible. So whenever Christians say, well, it's Old Testament, the Old Testament's pretty stinking important, right? You should read the Old Testament. It is a big arrow that points to the New Testament, to Jesus. So that's what these missionaries were using, the Old Testament to prove Jesus. Very important. So the missionary team, they were prepared they were ready to engage these people that didn't know Jesus, and they were ready to answer as many questions as possible, right? They were studied up. They had done their research. They had the Holy Spirit with them. They're ready. Now, what they studied was what is called Christology. That means that you can go through the entire Bible and see Jesus throughout the entire thing. Modern day, we refer to that as hermeneutics, because I know you guys, you know, care to talk about that over lunch, right? Mm, hermeneutics. Anyways... That's what we call it. And all hermeneutics is, is the way to study the Bible to see Jesus throughout the entire scripture. Now, why is that important to us, right? The reason that is important to us is because everyone who claims to be a Christian, listen, should be able to give a defense on why they are a Christian. All of us should at least have a rudimentary knowledge of why we follow Jesus. If people ask, why are you a Christian? You're like, I don't know, it's the South. We're just supposed to be, right? That's not a good answer. That is not a sufficient answer for an atheist or a non-believer or a universalist or anyone else. So we need to be able to study the Word of God enough 
to have a good answer why we follow Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? What is the cross? What is forgiveness? What is the Holy Spirit? We need to be able to talk about those things, but that only comes through prayer and study of the Word of God. So after explaining these things, right, the response was actually pretty good. They explained that Jesus had to come, he had to suffer, he had to die, he was risen from the dead. And so it said a lot of Jewish people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Not only that, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, which meant they were Greek by blood, but they worshiped the way the Jews did. They came to know God, not just that. A bunch of influential Greek women came as well. Again, this is important. You had men, women, Greeks, Jews, a diverse group of people that came to know Jesus Christ because these men had prepared and they were diligent about sharing the gospel with other people. That shows us that if we are diligent and prepared and if we share the word of God with people, not only will we reach a lot of people, we'll reach a lot of different kinds of people. That's what's so beautiful about this church. We've got a bunch of just weirdos running around this place. And I love that because God loves weirdos, right? <laughs> but God loves all skin colors. He loves all socioeconomic statuses. He loves people who are eclectic and weird. He loves people who are, you know, maybe straight-laced and normal, whatever that means nowadays. Anyways, he loves all kinds of people. And God wants all kinds of people in his family. And that's where we come into the picture, right? So everything's going great, and then a riot starts. <laughs> but the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset, and after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, has, has anyone ever worked in a mall? I'm not talking about like the avenue. I'm talking about like in a mall mall. Has anyone ever done that? Okay, a couple of us. I used to work at Hickory Hollow Mall back in like the heyday, right? Not only that, <laughs> I worked at Spencer's at Hickory Hollow Mall for a while. Yeah, this was pre-Jesus days. I just want to clarify that, right? This is before I knew who Jesus was because Spencer's is not the classiest place to work, right? So... I was at Spencer's right next to Gadzooks, if anyone remembers Gadzooks, right? That's where they sold skateboards. So anyways, um, I don't know any of you who've ever worked in a mall. Do you guys remember like the mall kids? They're, they're the kids that don't have any money, so they hang out at the mall all the time, right? And they typically get into trouble. Okay, so these wicked men in the marketplace were the mall kids, the mall rats, right? They were the ones that hung out in the retail stores, hung around the commerce in the marketplace because they didn't have anything else better to do. So here's what happens. The Jewish people who did not accept the gospel went and found the mall rats. They went and found the mall kids, right? They went to them and they said, hey, let's start a riot and that'll take the attention off the gospel that's being spread and, and, and it'll bring it away from them and we'll get them in trouble. So they got these guys, the mall rats, because they had nothing better to do with their time. That brings up an interesting point that a lot of, especially I think you men in the room, can identify with. Whenever we just have too much free time, some of us tend to get into trouble, right? 
no one wants to admit it right now. It's cool, right? I'll just, I'll just talk about me. When I have too much free time, right? That's why I started leaving my laptop at work. I don't wanna be hanging out at my laptop for hours on end at my home when my family's sleeping. That's not good for me. It's probably not good for most of you. And so we need to be careful that instead of having too much idle time, as the old saying goes, that idle hands are the devil's playground, right? That we need to find something good to do with our time. That we need to be good and intentional and have good people around us and be smart, right? Because what happens here are these guys that had nothing else to do. They're like, yeah, we're bored. We'll help you start a riot. And since the wicked men had nothing better to do, again, let's draw the attention off the Christians, not only draw the attention off them in one way, let's put the attention on them in another way, and let's make it look like they started the riot. So in a lot of the cities that the Christians went to, the bad guys, the antagonists, all kind of had the similar game plan. The game plan was make it look like the Christians are upsetting the tranquility of Rome. You guys have heard me say this before. It's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Let's make it look like the Christians are troublemakers, right? They're anti-establishment, and let's get them in trouble. So that's what they were going to do. So apparently there was a sympathizer of the Christians, a guy named Jason. Now, any of you Jasons out there, I don't know if you knew this, that is the Greek equivalent to the name Jesus or Joshua, right? So you had this guy, this guy Jason. He uh, uh, apparently hid the missionaries. So the mob attacks his house, drags him and several other Christians out, and they put them in front of the city officials. Now, how could they legally do this, right? Get into someone's house and drag them out in the streets. There was a law that had been passed in Rome called the Edict of Claudius. Now, this is important, right? The reason this is important, it was essentially a law that said wherever a riot took place in a Roman province, the government assumed it was the followers of Jesus that did it, and you could expel those people out of the city. So they said, if we can get them to believe that the Christians started the riot, the government will kick them out of our city, and that's what they proceeded to do. Now, how they addressed the government about the Christians is awesome and fascinating, There is this stereotype, or not a stereotype, there's been kind of this slogan or this title of Christians that we've adopted, and it's from Acts chapter 17. They brought these Christians in front of the government, and they said, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. So this was obviously an exaggeration, right? They hadn't even been to the entire world with the gospel. They hadn't even been through much of Europe yet with the gospel. How could they possibly be flipping the world upside down. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is there was actually some significant truth to it. Christianity, when it first started in the Roman Empire, was considered a cult, right? It was considered this small group of weirdos that got together, and they were a cult. Now, oddly enough, within about three centuries, that little cult of people, right, became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Eventually, Christianity would flip the world upside down, and the very people that persecuted them would one day make them the official religion of the world. And it has still been the biggest religion on planet Earth for the last 1,700 years or so. So this exaggeration of turning the world upside down is precisely what God intends to do through His people. We are the messengers of the message that turns people's worlds upside down. What are you talking to? Any of you in this room who who were not raised in church, or maybe you came into Christianity late in the game, you can tell stories of how God flipped your world upside down. 
My marriage was falling apart and then we became Christians and it turned it around. I was an, an addict or I was addicted to this and I met Christ and he flipped it all around. I had these toxic relationships or I didn't think well of myself. I met Christ and he flipped my world upside down. We are the people that are turning the world upside down, but we do it through the message of the gospel. That's what turns people's lives upside down and that's what we're called to do. So the accusation against Jason wasn't just that he invited the Christians in, that he was a sympathizer, right? But that he was also defying Caesar and saying that Caesar wasn't the king, Jesus was the king. Now, here's the thing. The city officials in this area in Thessalonica, they, weren't, uh, uh, they, they didn't want to beat these guys. They didn't want to throw them in jail, but they were upset is what the scripture says. So their goal wasn't to hurt them, they put a bond on Jason and his friends. Now, bonds worked the exact opposite in this time as bonds work now. If you go to jail now, you post bond and they let you out of jail. And this time, they would put a bond on them with the promise that people would leave. You're gonna get out of town, right? Or we're gonna charge you. So we're gonna put a bond on you guys for you guys to get out of here. So they wanted the Christians gone, so they put a bond on Jason and his friends, okay? So Paul was upset about this. How do we know? It doesn't mention it here. It mentions it in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter two, Paul mentions that he believed it was Satan that was shutting these doors in Thessalonica and not letting them advance the gospel. He thought it was a spiritual battle. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter three, the next chapter, he actually says that the Thessalonian church was quite successful, that it caught on, that a lot of people became believers in this area. So what does that show us? It shows us that this is a spiritual battle. And there will be times in your walk with God when you will have setbacks because literally hell is coming against you. That is gonna happen. But as Christians, we also need to know that though we are fighting a spiritual battle, as Christians, we need to remember that God always ultimately wins. Every single time. If you wanna flip to the back of your Bible in the, in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, God always wins, right? He always comes out on top. Will we have troubles? Yes. Will we fight spiritual battles? Yes. Does God always win? Yes, absolutely, right? Last part. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if any of these things were also so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica find, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Paul, or, I'm sorry, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. Okay? So as soon as it was night in Thessalonica, they sent Paul and Silas and his team out to Berea. Berea was about 50 miles further west than Thessalonica. Now, all this was intended to be was a place to lay low until things cooled down and they could go back to Thessalonica. But Paul thought, what the heck, I'm here. 
I'm going to go to the synagogue. I'm going to tell more people about Jesus. And when he went to the synagogue in Berea, he found out that the people of Berea were actually pretty amazing people. In fact, there's a stereotype about the Bereans. If you go to like Christian bookstores, you'll find Berean Bibles and you'll find different things, you know, like study like the Bereans and be like a Berean. And there's this reputation that Luke kind of gave these people that has been sticking around for literally thousands of years. Now, what made these people noble? What made them exceptional people? It was two things. They had an eagerness to learn the truth And when they heard the truth, when they heard the preacher, Paul, talk about it, they examined everything he had to say. So not only did they want to know the truth, they didn't just take whatever Paul said, right? They'd say, well, hold on a second. Let me go back and let me let me go back and read this again and let me compare and and let me see through the scripture what is right. So here's what we learn about the Bereans, which made them great people. We learn that answers come to the people who are objective and who are open-minded. And if one has a desire to learn the truth, as Jesus said, they'll find the truth. And so the Bereans, they were eager to know what is right and wrong. And not just that, they didn't just watch the podcast or listen to this sermon and just take it for what it was. They went back to the scripture and confirmed with the scripture by what the person is saying. Let me just throw this out here. Do not take everything I say as the gospel. Go back and fact check me. Go back and read the word of God for yourself. Make sure, because there are some bad pastors and ministers out there who distort the word of God to manipulate people. Make sure that you're not manipulated. Go back to the word of God and read it for yourself. So we are called to be like the Bereans. What does that mean? Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, he said, or to, in Thessalonica, he said, examine everything carefully. And hold on to what's good. That means, guys, sometimes you're going to read a book and we need to know this book well enough to where we can take the good stuff from this book and throw away the bad stuff, right? That we can watch a TV show and take some good things from it and leave the bad things behind. We can separate what is good and what is evil and hold on to what is good. To do this, though, and I'm not going to let you off the hook here. We're going to go back to this. This means that when we approach the Word of God, when we approach the truth, we need to put our political prejudices aside, our social, our economical, whatever prejudices we have, we are to set those things aside because if we don't, we will never know the heart and mind of God. You cannot approach the Bible through the lens of political views or social views or economic views. You have to approach the Word and let it be the Word of God and let it be the heart of uh, and heart and mind of God. So we must remember that God's ways, God's directions, God's teachings are superior to all things on this earth. All cultures, all, all ways of doing things, God's ways are superior to that. So again, everything's going well in Berea until the Thessalonians find out where Paul is. And it says a lot of people believed, including a lot of prominent Greek women, a lot of prominent Greek men. And then the Jews from Thessalonica heard about this success and that Paul was teaching. They brought the the commotion back to them. And the commotion was so intense that the missionaries' lives were in danger. They were afraid of being murdered by this mob. So they were going to have to split up and go different directions, and they're going to meet up in a couple of different cities. And so Paul says, let's disperse, right? 
and will meet up in Athens. That's what we'll talk about next week. So Paul leaves town from Berea. Silas and Timothy stay there a little bit longer. After they meet up in Athens, they're going to split up again because of security reasons and because they wanted to cover more ground and tell more people about Christ. And then they're going to regather in an area called Corinth, which is where we get the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, okay? Okay. Now, here's where we're going to just talk like big boys and girls, okay? And we're going to be honest, not just with each other, we're going to be honest with ourselves, right? The first thing is this. If you want to know the truth, truth, when we approach the truth, we cannot approach the truth subjectively. We must approach the truth objectively. What does that mean? This means that when we pursue the truth, we must ask ourselves, do we want the truth even if it contradicts our culture? Even if that means I shouldn't watch that show or hang out in this crowd or go to that place, right? Do I want the truth even if it contradicts my culture? Do I want the truth even if it contradicts my political views? Do we want the truth even if it affects me economically, right? Do we want the truth even if it contradicts our religious ideas? I love when people misquote the Bible and add stuff in, right? Well, Corey, because you know what it says in the Bible, love the, love the sinner but hate the sin. And I'm like, no, that's not in the Bible, right? That's not a scripture. People are like, well, you know what it says in the Bible, Corey, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I'm like, nope, that might be in your daily devotional. Not in the Holy Bible, though, right? And so we're, are, are, we, are we interested in pursuing the truth, even if it contradicts some things that Christianity has formulated? Do we want the truth? Now, the reason why a lot of us don't pursue the truth is because, quite frankly, a lot of times the truth can be exceptionally uncomfortable. Is everyone's seatbelts on right now because we're about to go at it? The first thing about truth when it comes to our culture is, do you guys want to know the biblical truth about human sexuality and sexual practice? I can show you the truth, but do you want it? Now, right now, you guys are saying, he's talking about homosexuality. That's right. We know exactly where we stand on that issue. We know where we stand on gender identity. We got it. You know, you know homosexuality is 1% of the population. I don't know if you guys know that or not. One out of every 100 people you meet may be prone to a homosexual lifestyle. And Christians, boy, we want to go at that 1%. We want to make sure that we make sure that everyone knows, right, that those people are not going to go to heaven. So the same statistics that tell us that 1% of the United States is homosexual also tell us that 95% of all people lose their virginity before they're married. Hey, do you want to know some truth? That's just as much of a sin. And 95% of us in this room have fallen to that sin. Now, what that means is this, guys, women, if you're in this room and you're having sex outside of marriage, it is a sin. It is wrong, and it will eternally separate you from Jesus Christ. I don't know if you want that truth or not, but it's in that book a lot of times. If you want to read a very offensive scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 will tell you exactly what kind of actions will eternally separate you from the kingdom of God, and that's one of them. 
So I know we're hyper-focused on this one group, and I think sometimes we want to get hyper-focused on that group because we don't want the heat turned up on us. You want the truth. This is the truth. Another truth is this. I think sometimes our political lines shape our thinking more than our biblical teachings. Guys, if your ideology comes from Fox News, or if your ideology comes from CNN, your ideology doesn't need to come from Fox News or CNN. Your ideology needs to come from the Holy Bible. Sometimes we think more along the Republican lines or Democratic lines than we think about the lines of Jesus Christ. If you get into that word enough, Jesus will contradict a couple of your Republican views. If you get into that word enough, Jesus will contradict some of your Democratic views. Are you okay with that? I think we've made politics an idol in our nation. We keep going to, man, we've got to vote this way or everything's going to fall apart. You need to get back to Jesus Christ or everything is going to fall apart. No politician can save your soul. No government can save your soul. There's only one name that saves under heaven and earth. And it's not a president. It's not a politician. It's not a nation. Listen, we live in a wonderful country with tremendous freedoms. But sometimes we need to turn off the news and we need to crack open the word of God. And this is where our mind needs to be shaped from these words. That is the truth. The truth is, is that the American dream, our pursuit of happiness and material things and success has taken precedence over the great commission of Christ. Again, we live in a wonderful nation with great opportunity. We live in such a wonderful nation that if anyone comes to this, this nation and works hard and is honest and diligent, they can succeed in our nation. It's a beautiful thing. My wife's family all immigrated over in the early 1900s. They're Italians. There's several doctors in her family. My, my father-in-law is a retired sergeant major in the army with a degree in political science. My, my mother-in-law has a master's degree in social work, a very successful family. My sister-in-law is an optometrist. There are several uncles that are optometrists. Very brilliant, successful family. That's a wonderful thing. But I think what a lot of us have done is we've made an idol out of the American dream. We're more concerned about the things we accumulate and the things we have and our status, right, and our success, that we forget Jesus didn't call us to be successful monetarily. He called us to disciple, teach, and baptize the world around us. He has called us to be benevolent and gracious and loving and to outdo each other with honor, as the Bible says. That it's not about you. When we become a Christian, we voluntarily say, it's no longer about me. It is about you and your kingdom, and your kingdom is about other people. That for many of us, our pursuit of happiness has trumped our pursuit of the kingdom of God. That is the truth. The truth is, is that many of us believe that the truth is relative. And Jesus hasn't moved. He was the same yesterday, he's the same right now, and he's the same for eternity. The truth doesn't change just because TV says it does. Just because my friends pressure me. Going back to sexuality and sex, it's always been a sin to have sex outside of the confines of marriage. I don't care that 95% of them do it. It's still wrong. Culture does not dictate truth. Truth is not a thing that moves just because I don't like it right there. Truth is concrete. 
It is immovable. One of the things about truth, and I get really bothered by this, in Christianity, we're not very comfortable with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ anymore. Listen, I have Muslim friends, Buddhist friends, Hindu friends, atheist friends, Unitarian friends. I have friends of every persuasion that you can possibly think of. But I have to be honest with them because I love them and say there is only one pathway for you to have a positive afterlife. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Now that's an offensive thing to say. Brothers, sisters in the faith, if you don't tell people the truth, without that truth, they will not be set free and they will eternally suffer. Tell them the truth. I don't know, maybe Allah and God are the same. They're not, they're not. Ask Muhammad, who's an elder at this church, who is an Islamic imam. Ask him if it's the same thing. Ask him if it's the same faith. It is not. Do I love the Muslim people of our community? Absolutely I love them. But I have to be clear, there is one pathway to heaven, and it is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Are you comfortable with that? Are you okay with that? It's the truth. If this is the book we claim to follow, Jesus himself laid that truth down clear as crystal. Here's the reason why we don't pick up this book that much. Here's the reason why a lot of you are afraid and we make excuses. Oh, it's a big book. So are the Harry Potter books. We read the heck out of those, right? I remember one time when I was a, a student pastor years ago and all those books started coming out and someone told me, Corey, I don't read the Bible. Look how thick it is. You can stack up those Harry Potter books and they're like this, right? Now a seventh grader can read this and you as an adult can't tackle this? The truth is we don't pick this up that much because I think we're afraid of what we're gonna find. The truth is, is when we get into this, it's gonna contradict some of the choices we make and some of the ways we live our life. The truth is, is when the truth is revealed through the holy word of God, we are then responsible for that knowledge. And a lot of us don't wanna be responsible, but guys, the truth is, all of us will be held accountable. We can't lean on the whole ignorant thing of, well, I've, I've never read the Bible, I didn't know. It's in every single bookstore in the United States, in multiple translations. You can even get it in comic book form, for God's sake. It's here. But let me shift gears for a second. Will we be held responsible for the truth? Of course we will. Is the truth uncomfortable at times? Yes, absolutely. Is the truth sometimes a hard pill to swallow? Yes. But let me change gears. The only way we are set free is the truth. The truth does not shackle us and confine us. The truth liberates us. The truth is our only key to get out of the prisons that a lot of us have been living in. The only way to get out of guilt and shame, the only way to get out of addiction and heartache, the only way to let go of the hurts and the abuses that people have done to us is the truth. And the mind of God put down on paper, the Bible says that every single word of this book is good for correcting and reproving and encouraging us, that it is the roadmap for how we live. The mind of God on paper for us, this liberates us. The words in that book will tell you how to be the mother you need to be. 
The words in that book will tell you to have a healthy marriage. The words in this book will tell you to have a relationship and how to have a relationship with your creator, how to raise your children, how to handle your finances, what government should look like. It's all in there. The problem is, is we don't read it. The problem is for some reason we want to distance ourselves from the truth because we're afraid that that truth may get into my life too deep and that I'll have to make some changes. But one day, every single one of you in this room, black, white, male, female, believer, non-believer, young and old, all of us will stand in front of the great judge. And Jesus himself said, we will be held accountable for every word and for every deed. But I didn't know. We've had so many opportunities to know. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, everything that you've heard today, you are now responsible for that knowledge. You're welcome. <laughs> right? I'm just... But again, before we pray, I want to end on a positive note. <laughs> it sounds so cliche and it's so simple. If more people would pick this thing up and objectively look at what the Word says, so many problems in culture around us would be resolved. So many things. Political things, marital issues, again, even financial issues. We're a people that are trillions of dollars in debt. In the book of Proverbs, it says that the debtor is always slave to the lender. The Bible says don't do that. Don't go into debt like that. But we don't follow the Bible. It says, men, love your wives like Christ loves the church. And then it says, women, respect your husbands. Listen, every married couple in here, I'm sorry I'm rambling, but I've got a couple of minutes. Listen, this is how easy marital issues could be resolved. This is, this is it. This is how simple. Men, treat your wife like Jesus treats us. Women, respect and honor your husband. If you just did what the Word said in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe, <coughs> marriages would turn around. Things would look differently. The truth is right there and it sets you free. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, my, my, my goal today was not hellfire and damnation. That, that, that is not my intention. That is not my goal. But I will tell you this. I love every person in this room, whether I've met you or not. I love you and I do care about your soul. And, and I mean this with all humility, all humility. But God has called me to be a shepherd. God has called me to hopefully lead a group of people into his kingdom. And so I care for you. I care about your marriage. I care about your kids. I care about your finances. I care about our city and our nation and our world. I care about those things. I don't share these things with you and I don't, I don't come at you like this to make you feel bad or to make you just wallow in guilt and shame. That's not my goal. My goal is to introduce the truth to you to where you don't have to wallow in those things. So your marriage is what it needs to be. So you are content. So you have a strong relationship with your creator. That's my goal. Here's what I'm gonna ask of you today as your, your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed.
couple of different things. There's men and women up here at the front. If you need prayer for anything, the Bible says where any two or more are gathered in my name, I'm in the middle of them. If you need any prayer, please let these men and women pray for you. Please let them put a hand on your shoulder, hold hands with you, and let them pray with you. There's also communion all the way around the room. That represents the body and blood of Jesus. Now, here's where the favor comes in. Either before or after you take that communion, before you need to ask Jesus to forgive you, you have to do that to take communion. But at some point, maybe while you're taking your communion, maybe while you're sitting there before, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask Jesus to just shine a light on your heart. And if there's anything in there, if you're doing things that you know are wrong, if there's some changes you need to make, if there's some lifestyle changes, if there's maybe some people you need to forgive because there's hatred in your heart, or maybe you need to ask for some people's forgiveness, whatever the hang-up is, I want you to ask God to show you and then to give you the strength and the courage to address whatever that issue is. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I hope you felt welcome today. I hope you felt comfortable. And I please, I hope you come back. But Lord Jesus, God, I want to pray over everyone in this room right now, Lord God. Father, I pray that you touch all of our hearts with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you shine your light on us, God. And whatever is in us that may be dark or maybe something that you're not happy with or maybe something we've done or maybe, God, some, some hatred in us because of things done to us, Lord, reveal that to us, Lord. Let us ask for forgiveness. Let us turn the right turns, God, and be what you want us to be, Lord. Strengthen us, God. Encourage us, God. Show us the truth and let us accept it in its totality, God. For everyone who gets prayer, God, I pray that you hear those petitions. For everyone who gets communion, Lord, remind us of your cross and what you've done for us, Lord. Bless everyone in this room, believer or non-believer, God. Keep your hand on us. Keep us safe and lead us and guide us, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.